Welcome to the University of Adversity, where the only rules of the class is to hold your head up high and keep moving forward. Because when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And now, here's your host, Lance Ecos. Hey, what is happening, everybody? Welcome back. Super excited to have you guys here today. We got a powerhouse of knowledge dropping in to shed some value on this subject. The carnivore diet has been coming up in, in our radar for a while now, and now it's starting to really, people are wanting to get answers. People want to know why this thing, why are promoting, people promoting just to eat animal products? Why are some people promoting to eat meat? Why are some people saying to have bone broth? Why are people saying to have organs? There's all these things that go back to our ancestral DNA that our next guest, Dr. Paul Saladino, dives into. Now, it's a pretty taboo subject saying just to eat animal products. But when you hear the science behind it and you hear why he's doing it, it's super, super powerful. And it shines some light on a very, very interesting topic, right? A lot of people are having gut problems, a lot of digestive issues. This could be something that could help you. So really excited to get into this. He has been on a ton of podcasts and he's currently being invited to a ton. So I'm really excited and really grateful that he came in and stopped by to share the value with you guys and hopefully make an impact in your life and help you make a different decision with your nutrition and your health. So awesome. If you guys haven't yet, go subscribe. Really appreciate it. Leave a review after the episode. Let us know what you think, how it impacted you. Today's review is from the CEO of Pick My Brain. She says, Lance's superpower is his genuine curiosity of people and their superpowers, and it shines through his podcast and his interviews with people. Candid, real, genuine, uplifting, and relatable. Thank you so much for that. I know who that is. She's got an amazing company called Pick My Brain, which allows you to monetize your, your service. Whatever you bring to the planet allows you to monetize it. She's awesome. That's a great plug. So make sure you check her out. Thank you so much for that review. As always, let's keep them coming. I'm going to try and read as many as I can. I'm going to read the best ones. So I really appreciate everybody. We're about to get into this amazing episode with Dr. Paul Saladino. We're just going to do a quick word for our sponsor and we'll get right into it. This episode is brought to you by Mike Young, the makeover master. If you feel your business image might be costing you money, influence, power, and respect, then head over to makeovermaster.com to discover what their complete brand makeover experience is all about. Go check it out right now because everyone deserves to look their best. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of University of Adversity. I'm your host, Lance Isios. Super pumped up today. My next guest is a functional medicine doctor, practices psychiatry, and is becoming one of the well-known advocates of the carnivore diet movement. With a medical system not always having people's best interests at heart, he has made it his mission to educate people by giving them the correct information so that they can make better choices in their life to reach optimal health. It takes a lot of courage to stand up for what you believe in. Super excited to have him on. Having this health industry and having so many people promoting different things, it's really awesome to have somebody that is talking about different things and really has everybody's best interest at heart. So really excited to have him on. Dr. Paul Saladino, welcome to the show, man. What's up, Lance? How are you? It's good to be here, my man. Uh, so good to have you, man. And uh, like we said, we were chatting before, 
you know, I've, I've heard you speak. I heard you on Ben Greenfield and it was like super inspiring, man, to hear your journey and what you're doing here with, with the carnivore diet and just in general on trying to educate people with the right information so that they can make better choices. So really excited to have you on, but I really want to know a little bit more about your story, first of all, and you know, how you kind of got to where you are today and why you decided to sort of take this route as opposed to sort of going on the path most doctors do. Yeah, it's a great question, man. It's a great question. I, I think that if I look back on my younger years, there might be some clues. You know, I grew up in a pretty conventional family in Northern Virginia. My dad is a doctor. My mom is a nurse practitioner. So I was kind of steeped in medicine. You know, my parents would have these conversations at the dinner table about atrial fibrillation and warfarin. And I always liked biology. I think it was just fascinating for me as a kid growing up to think about the way that the human body worked on the inside. It's really pretty wild. I mean, not many people get to do like cadaver lab and actually see what the human body looks like on the inside. It's actually something that's probably better that we don't think about. Because if you think about all the internal workings and this amazing stuff going on in your body, it kind of freaks you out a little bit. And you're like, oh man, there's like a brain and arteries and vessels and there's so much intricacy just in your, in your anatomy at a macro level. But I was fascinated by that growing up. And I was just so curious what was inside of my body. and how it all works. I think that it's probably more convenient to just imagine that it's all magical, but I just wanted to know. So, you know, high school was pretty normal. I was kind of a mathlete, more than an athlete. I, I didn't do many sports, but then when I got to college, I started being more physically active and I studied biology and then chemistry in college on the East Coast. So I went to William Mary, which is one of the oldest universities in the country and had some professors there who were really pretty cool people. They just really opened my eyes to philosophical questions. I got interested in sort of philosophy and meditation and Zen Buddhism and existential philosophy and comparative religions. And, you know, I think at the time I was just asking questions about who humans were and whether we had deterministic thought or whether we were actually able to make free will based decisions. And I figured at the beginning of college that I was going to go to medical school, but toward the end I thought, oh man, I've worked too hard. I need a break. I was pretty burned out at the end of college. And I think I, you know, I found enough pretty interesting things that I wanted to take some time off to explore other parts of the world. I wanted to travel and do some more things. So when I got out of college, I just traveled for six years. And I think that that might have been the beginning of just all these curiosity seedlings, you know, taking time off from structured education, I think, changed me as a person in so many ways. And during those six years, I did all kinds of really cool things. And I'm so grateful to have been able to do that. I think shaped me, you know, one of the first things I did was I hiked the Pacific crest trail. So that's a contiguous trail that you probably know about being up there in Vancouver. It goes from Mexico to Canada through the Sierra Nevada mountains, and then through the Cascades and Oregon and Washington. So it's this 2,700 mile wilderness trail that goes from Mexico to Canada. And I hiked that with a friend in the summer, you know, we hiked the whole thing continuously and, You know, I think being on the trail for three and a half months straight, I mean, just changes the way you look at the world and maybe just allows you to ask questions about what you're doing with your life and what it's all about, you know, and what are the values that we treasure most and what are the priorities. So that's always been a part of me and made me think about ancestral themes and what it's like to be somebody living off the land or closer to the land. 
I wasn't able to live off the land on the Pacific Crest Trail. We had these boxes that got dropped to us along the way. But we were in the wilderness. Yeah, you just mail these boxes to yourself, post offices along this trail. You know, there's like a yeah. 30, I think 30 resupplies along the trail and you just mail these boxes. But, but we were out there in the wilderness for three and a half months and it sort of makes you think like, how would we live out here? And what would life be like for our ancestors? And this is just such a simpler way of life. The only thing I had to do was get up and walk and stay warm and not be hungry. That was all I had to do. That was, that was joy. It was the simplest experience and it was so joyful just being out there all the time. It was just an incredible thing. So I think from that experience, I've always been fascinated by where we've come from as humans and what our ancestors were doing and, and how they lived and what they ate, which will become a theme for me throughout my life. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was a good time to reflect on that. And then I got interested in skiing and I started skiing. The guy that I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail with moved to Telluride, Colorado. And I learned to ski there shortly after and I became a ski bomb. And skiing just grabbed me. There was something incredibly adventurous about being in the mountains that just, oh, it was so intoxicating. I loved being in the backcountry in the mountains and being in wild places that made me feel small. I imagine, I mean, Vancouver's a gorgeous city and I think that like I'm fascinated by surfing now. And surfing and being in the mountains give you the same sort of perspective. I'm sure you're aware of this, where you just feel small. But when you feel really small in these huge natural circumstances, it's just this, it's just this clarifying feeling. It's, this, it's invigorating, but you're very humbled by how small you are in relation to these really big spaces. So I sort of have always tried to be connected with nature since those experiences. I spent a number of years as a ski bum and ended up working in a lot of bike shops. And then eventually kind of got the bug back in my brain thinking, I really liked that biology and chemistry stuff. I want to go back to school. I should use that part of my brain. I think it took six years to kind of recover from the burnout of high school and college where I just worked all the time and you know, didn't really balance. And my dad's a doc and he didn't really have a great time of it. You know, he, he just got really overrun by medicine, overworked, and wasn't able to keep a lot of work-life balance. So when I was thinking about going back to school, I thought, well, I really like biology and medicine. I want to go into medicine, but maybe I'll go to PA school first, and that'll be a good intermediate. Maybe I'll just go to PA school. And I imagined that I would stay as a PA, a physician assistant at that time. Then I thought that would be a good kind of intermediate because my dad, I'd seen him work so much, and I thought, oh, doctors just work all the time, and they can't run their lives and they don't have time to spend with their families. I mean, you know, at a personal level, I wish I'd seen a little more of my dad growing up. He tried, but he was so busy taking care of his patients and being an amazing doctor that he didn't, he wasn't always able to spend as much time with you know, my family as he wanted to. So I went to PA school at George Washington University back on the East Coast and enjoyed it. But that was my first foray into medicine. And then I moved out to Oregon started practicing medicine with a cardiology group. I'd always had an interest in cardiology. And, you know, it was crazy. Like within like months to the first year I was out of PA school, I was bored. And I thought, this is not right. I do not like this model of Western medicine that we are doing here. It's symptom focused and pharmaceutical based. And we're just treating the symptoms. We're just ameliorating the symptoms with a variety of pharmaceutical molecules. Where are the roots of disease? What is causing this? And at that time, I was dealing with a lot of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, atherosclerosis, 
So I wanted to know, you know, what is causing these things? What is causing arrhythmia? Why do some people get atrial fibrillation? Why do some people get, get these issues? And, and how do we correct it? I think atherosclerosis, which is the plaque formation in, in arteries, was one of the most fascinating things to me because that's like the thing everybody hears about. You don't want to die of a heart attack or a stroke. That's yeah. the bad stuff. And like, what causes that? What causes plaque to build up in our arteries? So I was fascinated by that. And pretty quickly within my career as a PA, so I, was, I worked four years as a PA in cardiology, but at least half of that time I was studying for the MCAT and then applying for medical school. Pretty early on, I realized I had to go back to medical school. I had to go to medical school, get an MD, and then you know, have full autonomy to practice as a doctor and do root cause medicine. And that was when I found functional medicine, which is basically just a system of root cause medicine. A lot of smart people in functional medicine trying to understand what the roots of illness are. So pretty much from the beginning of my medical career, I was bucking the trend and thinking, I don't like, I don't agree with this. You know, what are we doing here? This is not the way to do it, you know, and that's always hard. And that was, that was a huge source of challenge for me, you know, to like deal with that psychologically and to understand how do I exist in a system that I don't agree with? Is it something wrong with me or is it something wrong with the system? Is it a little bit of both? And it, that got really hard for me when I was in medical school because I was always thinking about things differently than my colleagues, than the residents and the doctors I was working with. And I always wanted to know what caused the illness. And if you want to know how to piss a doctor off, you just ask them what causes an illness. And when they don't have an answer, they generally get pretty pissed. <laughs> and they, they say, well, shut up. You know, they don't, want to, they don't want to ask that question. And that's not all of them. But definitely, I think that, that as physicians, sometimes it's a challenging thing to admit that we don't know the answer, or that we haven't thought about it. And mainstream Western medical education is not great at educating physicians to, to look for the root cause of an illness. We're really good at treating acute illnesses. We're really good at treating acutely stenosed or, you know, uh, closed arteries. We're really good at, you know, breaking up clots in the brain. We're really good at removing clots from the lungs if we get there in the right amount of time. We're really good at treating pneumonia and acute illness. We are really shitty in Western medicine at treating chronic illness and understanding things that work on a little bit slower time frame. And that was a hard time for me. And it continues to be a hard time for me. I'm in the last few months of my residency in psychiatry and throughout the whole process, I've just found myself disagreeing with people regarding the mainstream paradigm repeatedly, whether it's the mainstream paradigm regarding lipids and cholesterol and LDL hypotheses, or the mainstream paradigm of what causes heart attacks and atherosclerosis, or the mainstream paradigm of what causes depression and anxiety. It's just a constant uphill battle for me. I just think about things completely differently than most people, because for me, I've become obsessed with both these ancestral sort of themes and how humans have evolved to eat and live and, and how that might inform the way we're going to live now and also with the roots of an illness. And so when we get to these interesting questions about what the heck is causing this, it really brings into question the way we're doing the medicine we do. Because if we're giving someone a medication for depression that's just going to change the amount of serotonin in the synapse of their neurons, the question becomes, well, was the root cause of the problem that they didn't have enough serotonin or that they, and the answer is no. I mean, that's an old antiquated hypothesis now called the monoamine hypothesis regarding depression. And it's really going out of favor. So, you know, if we ask that question repeatedly in medicine, what we find is that we are constantly using band-aids. We're constantly just treating symptoms. 
And it's not for lack of intention or intelligence of any of the physicians. It's just for lack of a progression and evolution of the medical paradigm. We just don't know how to do it. We're not asking the right questions and we don't have the tools, which is where the dietary stuff gets to be so powerful. And some of these functional medicine interventions get to be really interesting. Most physicians, I think, feel like they don't have tools to even address the root causes of, of illness. I joke with some of my colleagues in residency that I feel like I'm being tasked with treating, with fighting uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex with a plastic spork. You know, I mean, they're, they're like, here you go. Here's your plastic spork. They go fight that dinosaur. And I'm like, what the heck? This thing is worthless. Like yeah. this is a worthless medication that's going to give people tons of symptoms and maybe not going to actually fix them at all. It's certainly not going to treat the root cause of the symptoms. So I just feel like, you know, as physicians, we're just ill-equipped. We're just not given tools. We're not giving, we're not given weapons with which to address the illnesses. We're given plastic sporks, man. We're given these worthless utensils that are going to break immediately. And that's why I think so many physicians get burned out is they don't actually have tools with which to treat patients. So that's been a really challenging journey for me and really led me to basically become obsessive about understanding the roots of an illness and question where the powerful tools are. You know, I've talked with my friends and said, I just want sharp knives. You know, surgeons get sharp knives. They get tools. They get tools to go in and take out the cancer. And that's incredible. But as, you know, medical doctors who are not surgeons, if we're treating people with chronic illness, we don't have sharp knives. I want sharp knives. I want, this is a metaphor, you know, I want sharp knives with which to attack the root causes of an illness. I want to understand what's causing it. But that process has been this total struggle upstream. You know, it's constantly disagreeing with people and disagreeing with paradigms and thinking, why are we treating it like this? It doesn't make sense. Why don't we do, why don't we actually try and understand what's causing it? So it's been this sort of, I think it's all come from, you know, parents who were super supportive of my time off and my personal exploration and my personal adventures, which sort of allowed me to become curious. And ever since then, it's just been, man, I'm just not the guy in the room that's going to follow the rules. I'm going to ask a lot of questions and be a pain in the butt for people. Awesome, man. Yeah, that's um, it's powerful. And I can't even imagine, you know, what you go through as well as like even what was your dad's perspective on it? Like even to this day about what you do compared to what he did. And like, oh, man. His, that must be tough in itself, like having to explain somebody that's done something one way for so long. And then here comes yeah. his, yeah, his, his young, son. young son full of uh, piss and vinegar wanting to change the world. What's he have to say about that? I don't think he knows what to think of it, man. I mean, my dad is so by the book. He's a by the book internist. He's a fantastic man. He cared about his patients. He's almost 70 years old now. And he's not really practicing medicine much anymore, but, you know, God love the man. You know, he, he just, I don't think he knows what to think about it throughout his, you know, because for the last 20 years, I've been talking to him about nutrition and food. And I just think it's so hard for him to wrap his mind about, and we can talk about nutrition and where the nutritional guidelines have come from, but he's from the old school and he really is kind of stuck in this idea that low fat is the way to go. And, man, when you think that, you're really going to have trouble achieving good health. And that I would argue that that discards all of our evolutionary paleoanthropologic history and evidence regarding that stuff. People will not be surprised by the fact that I think that humans should be eating 
a lot of animal foods and a lot of animal fat and that those are the most nutrient rich sources in our diet. And, you know, here's my dad, classically trained internist. And I mean, he's on a statin and he's on a blood pressure medication and he's very slow to appreciate it. That's just his personality, but he, you know, he just can't quite wrap his head around it. He told me a few months ago, he said, Oh, you know, I was, I was so happy. I lost a few, I like stopped eating bread and I immediately lost like seven pounds. And I was like, yeah, no shit, man. Like, why <laughs> yeah. don't you, why don't you stop eating rice too? And why don't you just go uh, low carb or go paleo? You don't even have to go carnivore. I mean, and then I tell him that I'm interested in this carnivore diet. And I think uh, that he just can't even wrap his head. He must like, just oh. be behind, beside himself, man. It's like, and, yeah. And every once in a while he'll like, I mean, I have a YouTube channel. He'll like watch yeah. my videos and he knows that I'm writing a book. So he'll ask me about how the book is going. And, you know, yeah. he's heard me on some podcasts and I think that he's starting to get it. And he follows me on Instagram, I think. But, yeah. you know, I think he's starting to see like, oh my gosh, here's Paul with followers on Instagram. And then he does a post and there's like a hundred people commenting and talking to him. And I think he's yeah. starting to see that, that, that people are interacting with me and he can see all the YouTube comments. And I think he's, he's curious, but I think that it's, it's just so foreign to him. He doesn't really appreciate it. And um, geez, I would love to. You're having, you're having uh, huge impact, man. Like, you know, I follow you on Instagram too, and there's always, everybody's posting what they ate and it's, it's <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's crazy, man. That, this is where I want to get into right now. This is what, and I love this because what you're doing is powerful and it takes, it takes guts to do what you're doing. And I love it. And a lot of people can learn from this, you know, because sometimes doing the right thing isn't always easy, you know, and I, I really admire you and thank you for what you're doing because it's oh, super, okay. super important, man. Like anybody could just follow the crowd. Right. And that's the whole point of this is that it's super important. You're going to deal with adversities along the way and you're still going to deal with a lot of shit, man. I'm sure you're prepared. Oh yeah, dude. You just opened up a can of worms. That's going to be like huge. Which but is- I love it. You know, we were talking about this before we got started recording yeah. and I love it. Like, I did a debate with Lane Norton and I'm just getting to the point now it's been an adjustment over the last few months because, you know, since the podcast with Ben Greenfield and it's really, it's growing so fast, Lance, yeah. it's crazy. I don't even know what it's going to be like in two or three months from now, you know, but once you hit Joe Rogan's man, it's going to, I know, be- I, I think it's going to happen pretty soon, but he hasn't invited me formally. So we'll see. So, you know, it's growing and there's, I welcome it. You know, I, I love that it's disruptive and I love that people are just, you know, losing their shit over it and being so mind blown. And (laughs) whoever I'm just at this point, I'm like, whoever wants to argue with me, that's fine. Let's do it respectfully. Let's, let's advance the field. Let's let people see the, the respectful discourse because, you know, I am more confident every single day that there is so much solid science to back this, to really explain it. I don't think everybody in the world needs to eat a carnivore diet a hundred percent of the time to have a, a wonderfully quality life. But I think that probably the most radical premise is that for people who are sick, that this could be an incredible intervention, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that a lot of the diseases that we're seeing, whether it's autoimmune, I would formulate psychiatric diseases, autoimmune, whether it's inflammatory, which is also connected with autoimmune, all of what we see in medicine is inflammatory. And I think that the majority of inflammation is caused by food. And I think that for a large portion of the population, plant foods are going to trigger autoimmunity and inflammation. And some people tolerate plant foods better than others. We see this. It's very clear. First premise would be that if people are sick, if they have autoimmune disease, if they have dermatologic disease, if they're not sleeping well, if they don't have enough energy or libido, 
they're not living the best life that they want, then yeah, you definitely could potentially level up by excluding plants. And we can talk about all the nuances of that and how that animal foods are really the best source of these optimal sources of nutrients for humans in the most appropriate ratios. And then you get rid of all these plant toxins. And then the second corollary would be people who are, you know, maybe eating plants and stuff and they feel like they're doing great. My sort of question, you know, that I ask kind of quietly would be like, I wonder if you could do better without them. You know, I bet you could even yeah. kick more ass without them. But I would admit, I accept and I respect that some people want to eat plants at certain times and that's a part of their quality of life and that's fine. But even just this radical concept that plants are not looking to help humans, that plants are really full of toxins and that plants don't want to get eaten. Kale does not love you back. I promise everyone listening. Yeah. Kale hates you. Kale doesn't want you to eat it. And it's doing many things throughout its millions of years of evolution to ensure that you eat less of it and, and we continue to eat more of it. And we're just not listening to what's going on there. So it's just this radical concept that plants don't like humans to eat them. They're full of toxins and they're not a good source of nutrition for humans long-term. And that's pretty radical. And that's for people who are struggling, who are sick, they can often find incredible relief. And this is what I think is fueling the movement. This is the grassroots, the bubbling cauldron underneath is all these people that send me messages on Instagram and I'm trying to repost them gradually. Like, oh, I mean, I posted one the other day. This, this young guy was like, hey, I had really bad psoriasis. I tried every diet. I tried paleo. I tried keto. I spent thousands of dollars on biologic medications. And then I did, you know, a carnivore diet like the way you were recommending, Paul. All got better. And I like, I was just like, oh my gosh, I wanted to cry. I was like, that is so cool. Yeah. Like that just doesn't happen in Western medicine. Like in four years as a PA, in two years of PA school, in four years of medical school, in four years of residency. So I've got, you know, I've got probably 16 or 14 years of medicine experience. I've never seen that happen other than now. You know, I've, I've never seen the stories. I've never seen people getting better like they do on a carnivore diet in 14 years of medicine. I've never seen it. I've never seen anybody come into my office and say, I went keto or I did paleo and my psoriasis completely resolved. Like I'm sure that it works for some yeah. people that they're allergic to dairy, but you just see it so much more. And then there, there are tons of these stories now, people who are doing paleo, doing keto, and then they go carnivore and they get even better. So I think keto and paleo diets are very valuable for people. They have a place, but it's just so cool to see these recalcitrant illness yeah. that isn't getting better. And then we're like, oh, but if you cut out the plants, it may get better. And it, it kind of harkens back to these ancestral ideas. This is probably what we've evolved to eat. Yeah, this is, this is what blows my mind, man. Okay, like, okay. First of all, I just want to clarify to everybody listening. So, okay, he's, let's first of all, carnivore meaning you only eat animal products, right? Can you just- Nose to tail. Yeah, yeah, nose to tail, right? Okay, so because people new to this, they're probably like, what? what is this guy talking about? But there's been versions, including myself, until I listened to you on Ben Greenfield, I was eating the cheese, I was eating whatever else. And then right. if you Google it and somebody says it's okay, you're like, fuck yes, I can eat that. But, <laughs> so, but then there was your version, nose to tail. Maybe can you explain why you don't have dairy? Because I thought that was amazing when you explained it before. And how important it is nose to tail and what the difference is between that maybe like keto and paleo. Because I think people are getting a bit confused. And can you just clarify why it's so important to like, to just eat nose to tail and not dairy as well. Yes, 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 sure. So what we see here is we're dealing with the immune system 
And the idea is that we're trying to understand the way that food influences our bodies from an immunologic level. And so autoimmunity is when the body is attacking itself. Inflammation is when the immune system is overly activated. So inflammation and autoimmunity are nearly synonyms. So we're thinking about what foods are going to trigger the immune system and why they might trigger the immune system. So we're trying to think about what foods are triggering the immune system. And the idea is that a lot of the dairy foods are very triggering to the immune system. And this is probably for a lot of reasons. Casein and whey are proteins in milk that just seem to be immunogenic. They're from animals, but they're pretty immunogenic. And if you think about it evolutionarily, milk is probably not something that our ancestors were eating anywhere beyond their infancy. You know, like animal husbandry, using dairy in pastoral cultures is very recent in human evolution. And most people do not do well with dairy. I've seen it personally. I've seen a lot of people have much better responses to diet when they cut out dairy because of the immunogenicity of casein and whey. And then there's another problem with milk, which is this idea of casemorphin. So there's a compound in milk, casemorphin, which is like an opiate and it is addictive and it can change our satiety mechanisms and cause weight gain. And so generally, even though milk is from an animal, most people feel better without this in their diet. And so then we think, okay, does that make sense evolutionarily? And I would argue it does because I mean, you're not going to drink a lot of milk when you're hunting animals. You might kill a cow that's pregnant or, you know, that's lactating, in which case you might get a small amount of milk from that animal. But, you know, our ancestors were not keeping animals and milking them. We only had breast milk for our lives for most of human evolution. So it's not something that is very consistent with most people's adult health. Some people can tolerate it okay, but this gets back to the idea that every person has a little bit of a different immunologic tolerance. and people are going to react immunologically to certain foods and milk is one of those foods that can be very triggering for people um, within the, within the animal kingdom. You know, going back to what you said, a carnivore diet is also, you could call it a whole foods animal based diet. It's an animal based diet. And this is where a little bit of the confusion comes in. People say like, Oh, you can eat cheese on a carnivore diet. And I think, well, you can eat cheese if you want to eat cheese on any diet. I mean, nobody's going to tell you what to eat. You can choose to eat cheese, but if you're doing a carnivore diet or you're trying to eliminate few foods, that are going to trigger your immune system, then you want to take out dairy for sure. If you have an immune condition, then you definitely want to take out dairy. And I would argue you also want to consider eliminating things like even egg whites. Egg whites are another thing in the animal kingdom that are kind of triggering for people. Probably less people react to egg whites than they do to dairy. But within the clients that I work with, I kind of have these different versions of like more and less elimination diets within a carnivore space. But the whole premise of a carnivore diet is that plants are probably the biggest offender. I would argue that more than any other food, the kingdom of plants is triggering people's immune systems. And this is through lectins. This is through anti-nutrients. This is through plant toxins that putting plant molecules in our bodies, I would argue that is the biggest contributor to immune system activation incorrectly uh, in human human food consumption. And there's also dairy and there's also egg whites. But then you get into like foods that are probably foods we were eating all the time 70,000, 300,000 years ago as we evolved as Homo sapiens and contacted Neanderthals. We were hunting animals and eating animal flesh, animal organs, animal connective tissue, animal bones, brains. Those are very common ancestral foods. We probably didn't eat as many eggs because they're pretty rare. But Most people tend to tolerate the egg yolk much better than they do the white. But if you really want to do a simple diet that's very evolutionarily consistent for a human, 
Then we're talking about this nose to tail carnivore diet, which I would define as a diet that is eating the whole animal. We're eating the bones, we're eating the muscle meat, we're eating the connective tissue, we're eating the organs. And if you look at all the different pieces of the animal, there are unique nutrients in all those things that we know humans need in terms of human nutrition. So in order to get all the nutrients that we need, we have to eat all of them. The other permutation of a carnivore diet that I, I have concerns with is people who just eat meat. They just want to eat steak and yeah. bacon and Rib eggs eyes. all day. Yeah, just the <laughs> ribeye diet, which is great. You'll probably lose weight, but you're definitely going to develop nutrient deficiency. And that's where people say like, that's a crazy diet. You can't just eat steak. And I would say, yes, 100%. You cannot just eat steak. No indigenous person on the face of the planet has just eaten steak ever. You can't just eat steak and eggs. No. <laughs> you can't. Yeah. You can't just eat steak and eggs. You, I mean, eggs are great. When you put it yeah. in an egg yolk, yeah, yeah. you're adding a lot of unique nutrients because, you know, the steak is missing a lot of the B vitamins. Yeah. But those are found in the liver. But if you eat the whole animal, it's just like you're, you know, you imagine yourself 70,000 years ago, homo sapiens, moving up from Africa into the Neander Valley of Europe, and you're hunting animals and you kill a buffalo man, your tribe is going to eat every last piece of that animal that you can eat. You're not going to be like, ah, this part's a little chewy. I'm not going to eat it. No way. What that piece of that animal is what stands between you and starvation and you and being healthy enough to reproduce or you and being healthy enough to hunt tomorrow. You are going to get every little bit of nutrient out of that animal. You're going to eat those bones when you can. You're going to crack those bones open and get the bone marrow. You're going to eat the brain. You better believe they're going to eat the tongue and the eyeballs. And there's unique nutrients in all those places. You know, I've said on other podcasts that if you could design the ultimate multivitamin for a human, it would be an animal, you know, eating the whole animal. They contain all the nutrients that humans need in the most bioavailable forms. So if somebody today, including myself or anybody listening, wanted to have like the starter pack carnivore, right? like somebody's to go, okay, I want to start this. What can they, what, what should they have in their shopping cart mm -hmm. for a starter kit for getting this thing going? Mm -hmm. Okay. This is where you get into a little bit of nuance and you're not going to be able to fill your shopping cart at every grocery store in the U.S. So it's, what's cool about this diet is it requires a little bit of an intention and attention to detail. So granted, assuming that you could get all these things, if you were going to go to the animal shopping mart, basically you'd, you'd almost have to go to a butcher. Yeah. more than you would want to go to a grocery store. But say you go to the butcher, right? Let's just say you're going to the butcher. How do you do this? You want to eat as much of that animal as you can. So you're going to start with some steaks, right? Yeah. But you don't want to do too much on the steak. You got to really think about your protein, the macros. So ancestors evolutionarily, we've probably been eating something like 35% of our calories from protein and 65 to 70% of our calories from fat. So now, remember, fat is nine calories per gram and protein is between three and four, depending how you do the thermic calculation. But, you know, this means that we're probably going to want to eat about half meat and half fat by grams. So you have to think you need a fat source in addition to your meat source. So you're going to go to the butcher and you're either going to get the fattiest cut of meat that you can, like a ribeye or something, or you're going to get the fat of the meat plus something like bone marrow, right? Some extra fat or some tallow. So you might get a steak and tallow, which is rendered beef fat, or you might get steak and bone marrow. Because if we think about it anthropologically, if we think about it evolutionarily, our ancestors always said they were looking for the fattiest animals. The fattiest animals are the, are the, are the prized animals, not the lean animals. And there's all sorts of instances of this throughout human evolution where at certain times of the year, the animals are very lean. And our ancestors would, would have been recorded saying there is no food. There is no food. Because we know this from human evolution that humans cannot live 
on protein alone. This is what happens to the Arctic explorers is they get rabbit starvation. If you just eat protein, you'll get rabbit starvation. You need to have fat or carbohydrate in your diet as well as a protein in terms of macros. Mm. If we're just eating animals, if we're trying to eliminate plants, we're not going to get much carbohydrate. So we're just thinking fat. So we kind of dwell on that fat to protein macro. And so you'd want to get meat preferably grass-fed organic meat, but people should do the best that they can. And then you need a fat source, whether it's bone marrow or extra fat or a fatty cut of meat or bison or beef or bison tallow. So that's the meat and the fat, right? Mm. The next thing is the organ meat. So then you have to ask the butcher for liver. And I would recommend people eat two to three ounces of liver per day. And if you look at liver, it is so nutrient rich and has all of these fascinating minerals and vitamins that complement what is in muscle meat. If you look at muscle meat, it's high in zinc but low in copper, or pretty moderately low in copper. Well, we know that in human nutrition, we need both zinc and copper in the right ratios. If we overeat zinc without getting enough copper, we can get a copper deficiency because zinc and copper are stored in the same cells of the small intestine, and the body sloughs these cells off. So if we overeat zinc or we over-supplement on zinc without getting enough copper, we're going to get a copper deficiency, which is a pretty big deal. But what's really cool and the symmetry about this that I love is that if you eat the liver of an animal, that's rich in copper. So if you eat the liver with the muscle meat, this is just like they're complementary in terms of nutrients. There are lots of examples of this. If you look at the B vitamins in muscle meat and the B vitamins in liver, they're complementary. There are different B vitamins in both. I mean, there's a little bit of overlap, but there's a lot of folate, relatively speaking, in the liver. There's not a lot of folate in muscle meat. If you just eat muscle meat, you're going to get a folate deficiency generally. There's a lot of biotin in the liver, not a lot of biotin in the muscle meat. So there are these complementary nutrients. So this is the agnosis health concept, right? So you've got your steak, you've got your, your bone marrow, and you've got um, you know, maybe some extra bison fat or tallow, and then you're going to get liver, right? Two to three ounces a day. And then you're going to need to get an omega-3 source. The bone marrow has a little bit of omega-3, but I think at this point you have to think about seafood. This is why I recommend things like salmon roe or wild low mercury salmon. Right. What do you cook it in then? This is, this is another thing. Do you get ghee or do you get, do you cook it in the tallow? I've tried cooking it in tallow, but it kind of burns a bit. What's the yeah. best way to cook? Like the meat? What do you use? Yeah. At a, like a decently I, high temperature. I don't cook in I don't cook in oil because I don't want to like oxidize the oil. Right. And you can get a brown on the meat when you cook in the tallow, but that's probably going to increase the yeah. advanced glycation end products. And I'm you know trying to always meter and you know mitigate these things. People talk about polycyclic aromatic hydro aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines if you burn the meat. So I'm trying not to burn my meat. So I'll just cook in a dry pan. Okay. Most meat is moist enough, especially if you have a cast iron pan that's well seasoned. You don't even need oil in the pan. You can just throw it in the pan and sear it on both sides and it's fine. You don't need to cook in oil. And I would recommend against cooking with, in tallow. And okay. I, don't, I don't recommend ghee in the beginning. Ghee is supposed to have all the casein and whey removed. But I think for people that have immunologic issues, it may still trigger them. It's delicious. And I think people could start with the most simple version of the diet and then reintroduce as they go forward if their symptoms get better and then see what triggers them. But I have had people message me and say they think that ghee actually can trigger them. Hmm. Interesting. Cause I still like, look, I've been toying with this. I've been trying it for a bit. I was doing the eggs and the beef and I was using a little coconut oil. I know that's against the, but I'm trying to do it in, in steps. Yeah. Yeah. Do it in steps. And I like that. And I tried the tallow. You're right. It burnt a bit, but this is the kind of stuff that I think for people to take it on, it has to be simple for people. And I think that 
just the way you explain it, the little steps and getting liver in your diet and those kind of things will make it easier for somebody to make that change, right? Yeah. My next question is like, I'm a hockey player, right? So ice hockey for anybody that's not from Canada or the States listening, I've kind of, let's say like I have a playoff game coming up and I'm apprehensive about not throwing in some carbs prior to the game. So let's say for instance, a high performance athlete, you know, the CrossFit types or high endurance athletes, somebody that needs that. Do you need to consider that in this diet that obviously our ancestors probably weren't competing at the level that some, well, maybe they were, but a lot of us that are very high intense are probably more active than some of our ancestors. Do you need to adjust that accordingly? And for, for people that are active, what would you suggest for doing that? Get tap more into keto or add some sort of carb in there? Just Yeah, it's a great question. I get asked that a lot. So I'll comment on that and then I'll go back to the butcher shop and finish all the other, all the other pieces right. of what people are eating. Um, because I didn't, we didn't finish at the butcher shop yet. We're still in the butcher shop. Our cart is about three fourths okay. full. Perfect. We got a few more things to get at the butcher shop. But, you know, this is a really interesting question. And I think it has to do with the timing and how long you have been doing a ketogenic or a carnivorous diet. Those are two different things. But by definition, a carnivorous diet is going to be ketogenic. So there's a really fascinating study by Finney and Volek. It's called the FASTER study. And they looked at high carb athletes and low carbohydrate athletes, and they fat adapted them over eight to 12 weeks. And what they saw was that after eight to 12 weeks, they had these two athletes had the same amount of glycogen storage and replenishment when they were exercising. So I think that 95% of the questions I get from people in CrossFit space and intense space are people who have not been adapting for eight to 12 weeks, right? So I think that if you're in the adaptation phase, yeah, you, you're not going to be fully fat adapted and you're probably not going to perform at your best. But if you had an off season or something and you want to do this diet and you want to change over, then I believe, and I've seen this in myself and other athletes, that there's no decline in performance for intense activity once you're fully fat adapted. So about eight to 12 weeks in the diet. I, um, I was talking to uh, a guy who works a lot with NBA players and he was saying, well, should they switch over during the season? I said, I don't know, man, it's the NBA. These guys make millions. I probably wouldn't advise it. But in the off season, go through the adaptation phase. Get your body really used to working with all these fat adaptations by doing beta oxidation, by generating ketones. And I believe, based on the research, that in that amount of time, you will become so fat adapted that your body will store and replenish glycogen at the same rate as a carbohydrate-using athlete. And then there are other benefits to ketogenesis, you know, mental clarity, recovery, fasting, anti-inflammatory benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So I would argue that a keto-adapted athlete is going to be better in the long run, but there's going to be an adaptation phase. And so most of the guys who are doing CrossFit said, hey man, or jujitsu, I hear a lot from guys because I've done jujitsu before and I've talked about it on podcasts and people reach out to me. They say, hey man, I'm not doing so good when I'm rolling. And I said, yeah, because you're probably in the adaptation phase, right? Or they're not eating enough fat. So there's, those are the two pieces. People eat too much protein and not enough fat, or they're just having trouble adapting and they need a few more weeks for their body to really get into that phase. So the, the double-edged sword here is kind of that if you're a CrossFit athlete or if you're a hockey player and you want to do intense stuff, then if every two to three days you're having a carb bolus, you're not going to get fat adapted, right? You're never going to get to the place that you're going to feel good without it. But probably evolutionarily what happened was that in the winter, our ancestors were totally ketogenic all of the time. And then your body just adapts and gets into this fully fat burning state. 
and you will have glycogen. You will use glycogen at the same rate. It's not that you have no glycogen and you can't do intense things. You know, when I was hanging out with Ben Greenfield, the morning of that podcast, he's like, hey, man, let's do a 30-minute Tabata. And I was like, Ben, you're a masochist, but all right, what am I going to say, right? So yeah, I mean, and so Ben and I, I mean, Ben's an elite athlete, so of course he's going to kick my butt a little bit. But, you know, we did like, I think we did six or seven by four minutes, maybe eight by four minutes of Tabatas, you know, in a row. So I did 32 minutes of Tabata intervals or 30 or 32 minutes of Tabata intervals, fully fat adapted. And I was like, this is fine. Like I was totally fine. I was suffering because I don't do a lot of Tabatas. I usually go to the gym and hit the punching bag or something. It's a little bit less intensity. And he had an aero bike, which if you've seen that or anyone knows that those are mechanisms of torture. Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I was totally fine from an energetic standpoint. You know, I could have been more adapted to that level mm-hmm. if I'd done it more, but I didn't notice it. And so I think that it's just a matter of getting adapted. So if you personally wanted to do this and, you know, you need six to eight, maybe 12 weeks max, and then you'd be fully fat adapted, right? And then I bet I'm really sure that you could go to hockey and be like, I don't need any carbohydrates. Mm. And the awesome thing about that is that it just frees you up for the rest of your life to just fast or you know, go long periods without food or do longer periods of, you know, intermittent fasting, do smaller periods of time-restricted eating. And then you get all the benefits of ketones, mental clarity the rest of the time. So, but if people want to do an adaptation phase, they can certainly incorporate some carbohydrates at times. If people want to do carbohydrates on a carnivore diet, I recommend something like honey. But if people are not sensitive to plants or plants every once in a while are probably not going to hurt, they could do something like squash, I'm not a huge fan of rice because it's higher in lectins, but mm. you know, I think something like a, like a squash is reasonably low in lectins. I think Stephen Gundry might disagree with me with that, but I disagree with him about everything that he says. So, yeah. but I mean, you know, plants are going to have lectins. There's no way around it. And if you're going to get carbohydrates from plants, you're going to have some detriment, no matter whether you do a simple carbohydrate like honey or a complex carbohydrate, but I would not recommend things like beans or other carbohydrate feeds just because of how, immunogenic those foods are we can get into that as well but the seeds the nuts seeds grains and legumes they're all seeds and those foods have have the highest levels of lectins so does that answer your question yeah no absolutely it just boggles my mind that 10 15 years ago when i was playing junior hockey we were being told to eat plates of spaghetti and white pasta and stuff you know and i always wondered why i had such bad lactic acid in my legs and the stuff we were being told to eat and athletes, any, all, any athletes that are listening could probably agree. That's what we were taught back then. Yeah. And it's crazy. We'd be eating pizzas after the games, like junior hockey players, like trying to make it professionally. No clue at all. Eating Subway, just bullshit like that. And it just makes me think like, man, if we were properly educated, but I don't think it was anybody's fault because nobody really knew. Nobody had a clue. Nobody, yeah. had... nobody knew. And, yeah. And what eating like that, Again, going back to the immunologic thing, eating like that neglects immunology. You know, you've got to imagine that in a pizza, in pasta, there are so many immunologic triggers. I mean, everybody knows about gluten as an immunologic trigger now. And, you know, solanaceae vegetables, nightshade vegetables, so triggering to the immune system. So what you're doing is you're giving your body carbohydrates, you're giving your body macronutrients, and you're just really pissing the shit out of your immune system. You know, you're dropping a bunch of firecrackers on your immune system with all those plant molecules that are immunologically very, very activating. So that's the problem is you're just, you're just kicking your immune system into high gear and creating this low grade chronic inflammation, which just leads to poor recovery, poor performance overall. And you could do it much more cleanly in in a lot of different ways. So 
Well, let's go back to the butcher shop yeah, so people can say, get them. All right. I want to make sure we, uh, we go get all the things we need from the butcher shop. So at the butcher shop, we've got, we've got good grass-fed meat. We've got bone marrow. We've got some tallow. We've got liver. And then the other thing we're going to need is some sort of connective tissue because we're going to think about this methionine-glycine ratio and the idea that muscle meat is pretty high in methionine and it has some glycine but not as much as connective tissue. So this kind of gets to the nose-to-tail idea that in traditional cultures, you see them eating things like tendon. So you either need to do bone broth with tendons or a collagen supplement or eat collagenous tissue from the animal, like actually get the tendons from the butcher and make soup out of them or something. Because again, we're eating nose to tail. So we have a muscle, the muscle's connected to a bone by a tendon, right? And that is, that's going to be super important. We're going to eat that part of it too. You know, we're going to eat every piece of that tissue. And that the tendon is, is sinewy and we can't chew it as well. So we're going to have to boil it really make it soft. But if people have had tendon, it can be really delicious once it's cooked down enough. It's, it's really good. So we're going to need the tendon. We need the connective tissue. We need to think about getting enough glycine in our body to balance methionine because the muscle meat is so high in methionine. The muscle meat is high in methionine. It's going to use up glycine to buffer the methionine. So just for the sake of giving our body enough glycine, even though glycine is a conditionally essential amino acid, most people don't make enough of it and they run a deficit. And if we run a deficit of glycine, we don't make enough of two really important proteins in our body, specifically collagen and glutathione. Now, glutathione is the main antioxidant in the human body. So you don't want to not make enough collagen and you don't want to not make enough glutathione. Those are both really important. And like I said, most people will run glycine deficient in their body's endogenous capacity to make it. And especially if you're eating a high methionine diet, it could be a real problem. And, and I would say that the more meat you're eating, the more methionine you're eating. It's not a problem to eat a lot of methionine, but you just have to make sure you balance it with methionine, excuse me, balance it with glycine. Mm. There were a lot of animal studies that were done in the 50s and 60s and 70s that showed that high methionine diets could shorten the lifespan of rats. And so this got conflated with the idea that animal protein was going to shorten lifespan. And people will often quote these studies now and they don't understand them. The idea was that they found that it wasn't the methionine, it was the methionine-glycine ratio, and that when they supplemented the mice with glycine, that the lifespan normalized and was extended, right? It was just the fact that they were giving, they were overfeeding methionine to these rats, and that will shorten their lifespan. It wasn't that the animal protein will shorten their lifespan, or that protein in general will shorten our lifespan. It was that overfeeding with methionine messes up our biochemistry, that will shorten our lifespan. Well, how do we correct that? piece of cake to see glycine rich tissues it's not hard right so as far as this is another thing though so someone's eating organ meat right you're having liver isn't liver supposed to be one of the most toxic organs what happens to this is one question that i was curious about when you ingest that liver are you not taking in some of those toxins and what about the stress hormones that these animals produce are you taking in that as well well, the liver is actually not a very toxic organ at all. So the liver's job is to turn toxins into water and fat-soluble forms, which are excreted in the bile and the urine. So they go, the, the toxins then go out in our urine and our stool. So the liver doesn't store toxins. The liver isn't like full of toxins. Interesting. The liver is just full of nutrients that it uses to bioactivate these toxins and get rid of them. We do store some heavy metals in our bones. And so one of the things we need to get at the butcher shop is a bone to actually make bone meal because I think people need calcium. So we just want to make sure that the animals are fed well and they're grass fed and make sure that we get a sense of uh, how much lead might be in those animals' bones. And we don't have to eat a ton of the bones, but 
bones do store heavy metals in addition, but the liver is not a repository of, of toxins, no. Okay. And then basically those hormones are steroid hormones. They're mostly degraded via cooking and over time. And yeah, if an animal is super stressed, you're going to maybe get a little bit of its hormone in the, but that's going to be in the meat and everywhere. It's going to be throughout the animal. So this has to do with the way that they raise and they kill the animals, you know, like a, a humanely raised, a humanely killed animal is going to have less cortisol, less of these stress hormones than an animal that's on a feedlot, an animal that's like sitting in this like pen for a while before, you know, like, so that, that's just the idea that like, you just yeah. want to have the animal treated as well as you can while it's alive and be as respectful to the animal and appreciate the fact that when you're eating an animal, there's some sort of a spiritual transaction going on there. You know, if an animal is giving yeah. its life to you, I feel like we all have a responsibility to be better humans and kind. And I think that by not killing the animals ourselves, we're sort of divorcing ourselves from that sort of spiritual transaction, which is interesting. Yeah, so, well, that's, I've kind of heard there's a lot of different information about this. And some people say it doesn't matter what meat it is, it's better than plants. Some people say it's all about the quality, right? The meat, yeah. yeah, because what would you say is worse for you? Eating a uh, whole bunch of plants <laughs> that aren't cooked raw? Or eating some conventional meat? I think it's the plants, man. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's, the, it's the plants. Wow. Yeah, I think that, I mean, but you know, then, then I want to make the clear distinction that I think that, that grass-fed, organically raised meat yeah. from an animal that's been treated well is, is better than conventionally raised meat too. So, you know, yeah, Ben Pakolsky asked me that at the end of an interview I did with him on his podcast. And he was like, so you're at a restaurant and they have organic salad and conventional meat. What do you eat? And I was like, I think at that moment I vacillated, but the more I've thought about it, I was like, you eat the conventional meat because the plants are clearly trying to hurt you, you know? What about fruits? What about like avocados? Man, tell me I can have an avocado. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about fruits in general, right? Yeah I, would divide, that's, yeah, I would divide fruit. Let me just make sure we've gone through the butcher shop because I yeah. want that's a big takeaway for people and for I want sure. to understand how to eat nose detail. So at the risk of belaboring this, I'll just give them the quick summary. You walk into the butcher shop, you get meat, you get bone marrow, you get tallow, you get, you get collagen and some sort of connective tissue. You get wild-caught salmon or some sort of seafood for omega-3 and iodine. And then you get liver and you get bone meal. And once you've done all those things, you really have started to eat nose to tail. You've basically eaten the whole animal. And that's the way to construct a, a full carnivore diet. And it may sound confusing or cumbersome. Oh, man, that's a lot of things. But you think about it, like that's like six things. You know, like Most people buy more than six things at the grocery store. You just have to think sort of readjust your paradigm in terms of how you're thinking about this. You know, those are the six things that are going to give you the most bioavailable nutrients in the butcher shop. And basically you can do all of your shopping in a butcher shop. There's, you know, if you can find all those things in a grocery store, great. But if you wanted to go one place, it would be a butcher shop because they're more closely related to the animal. Yeah. Coming back to your question about fruits. So I'll just put this in the context, right? So I kind of hinted at this earlier. I think I may have just said it explicitly. Plants don't want to get eaten. Plants have evolved toxins, whether we're talking about oxalates, endogenous plant pesticides, meaning pesticides that plants are producing. Plants produce thousands of chemicals to deter herbivores from eating them, and then we spray chemicals on them. But I'm just talking about the chemicals that the plants produce. So plants have pesticides that they produce, oxalates, phytic acid, anti-nutrients are like phytic acid, digestive enzyme inhibitors, lectins, which are carbohydrate binding proteins. And this can be a real, all of these can trigger our immune system. All of these can be toxic to humans. So plants don't want to get eaten. That is the roots, stems, leaves, and the seeds, which includes seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes. So that's, so what's left? Fruits. All right. 
plants do want animals to consume their fruit. That doesn't mean that the fruit is good for us. Now, if we're talking about most fruit, I would call fruit plant pornography, right? It's just like the sexy pinup model that is really tempting, but leaves you feeling quite empty in the long run. There's really no redeeming value to pornography, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a quick hit. It's very hard to resist, but there's no redeeming value or long-term nutritional value in, in fruit. You know, people would want to argue about all the plant compounds, and we can get into polyphenols a little bit, and I will hopefully disabuse people of the notion that there are specifically valuable polyphenols in fruit or any part of the plant for humans. But we know that basically what the plant has figured out is they can make a super sexy product that animals will eat. doesn't mean that it's good for the animal. It's good for the plant because the plant wants you to eat its seeds and then poop them out a half a mile away and spread the seeds. That's what a fruit is doing. All the plants figured out ways to spread their seeds. If plants didn't figure out a way to spread their seed a mile away, they would never get anywhere, right? They can just see to be too much competition for the reasons they have to have it blow away in the wind like a dandelion or have a fruit that something is going to eat or, you know, have something that's going to move their seeds somewhere else. And that's what they're using us for and using herbivores for and other sort of animals for to move their seeds. But it doesn't mean there's anything good for us in the fruit. If we look at the fruit, we have fructose, which is a five carbon sugar. And we know based on human biochemistry that that five carbon sugar is not really good for humans. It just doesn't get digested the way that glucose does. Glucose is probably not that great for humans either. We need it and we can use it, but fructose and glucose metabolism are completely different. If you look at the level of the liver, the way that fructose is metabolized, it uses up you know, more ATP. It generates AMP, which can then be metabolized to uric acid, which we know can accumulate in gout. If you look specifically at the condition of gout, fructose seems to worsen gout by probably by causing insulin resistance through a variety of mechanisms. In the brain, fructose can cause changes in satiety by interfering with leptin and ghrelin signaling. And probably at the level of the mitochondria, fructose is causing some inflammation leading to insulin resistance. And we know that insulin resistance can lead to um, decreased excretion of uric acid. It does seem clinically that when we eat more fructose, that is probably the main contributor to gout rather than the amount of uric acid. There's a delicate balance there. Gout's an interesting sort of disease paradigm. But fructose is, a, is probably the biggest contributor to gout rather than animal meat. But if you eat a bunch of fructose, that'll raise your uric acid through the roof because the insulin resistance and the way that fructose works in the body will change the way your body is excreting uric acid and you won't be able to excrete enough uric acid. That's what's raising the problem, not the actual meat, which is what everyone gets told not to eat. Anyway, that's an aside about gout. So basically what we're doing is we're eating this five carbon sugar that's kind of poisonous for us. It doesn't really, it uses up a lot of our resources. It's not very helpful. People would say, oh, well, fructose is going to replenish your liver glycogen faster than glucose during exercise. And you say, yeah, maybe in that one experience, like maybe, but it's really not that clinically useful, or I don't think it really has that much of a benefit on athletic performance. I mean, if people are engaging in a huge athletic experience and they, they're not fat adapted, they need to have a carbohydrate. I would always recommend glucose over fructose, but that's neither here nor there. So yeah. And then, and then you think about well, what else is in fruit that's going to be beneficial for it. People might say vitamin C, to which I would refer them to a video I did on YouTube about vitamin C with Bart K. Vitamin C is probably overused. Um, we can get plenty of vitamin C from animal meat, actually, and animal organs like liver. There's plenty of vitamin C for humans in that. And the idea that vitamin C is this, this amazing antioxidant is a misinterpretation of the data. I think that there's strong evidence now that vitamin C is probably valuable for us to prevent scurvy, which has to do with the formation of hydroxyl groups on the collagen strands. But beyond that, 
I think it's pretty hard to make a case that vitamin C has any real antioxidant benefit. And in fact, what we see with pretty moderate doses of vitamin C is that they could turn into a pro-oxidant molecule. You can see this because excess supplementation with vitamin C can lead to hemolysis in people with glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency. So this is a condition in which one of the enzymes in the red blood cell is defective and you can't convert glucose 6-phosphate into the, into the next intermediate, which has a very long name. And when you can't do that conversion, you can't regenerate NADPH. And if you can't regenerate NADPH, you can't regenerate glutathione in the red blood cell. And so they're more sensitive to oxidative stress. So people with G6PD, which is about 10% of the world population, are sensitive to things like fava beans because fava beans have this toxin in them that is an oxidative toxin, and we can't detoxify it as well, or they can't detoxify it as well. And then they get hemolysis of the red blood cells because of the oxidative stress in the glutathione. Well, if you take too much vitamin C, somebody with G6PD can have the same thing. They can have hemolytic anemia from taking too much vitamin C. So the idea that more vitamin C is better is clearly false in my opinion. And excess vitamin C seems to lead to pro-oxidative stress rather than an antioxidant effect. I don't think vitamin C is really serving the role as an antioxidant that we believe it is. So I would argue there's not a lot of benefit to the vitamin C in, in fruit. And then people would want to pick out one compound or another, whether it's elagic acid or the polyphenols and pomegranate. And I would successfully, or I would successively argue with them about each of those individually and argue that the, the effects of those polyphenols are marginal. They're extremely poorly absorbed. We could just talk about pomegranate, for instance, because pomegranate gets all this good press and it's all hype. We don't absorb the polyphenols in pomegranate at all. Yeah. And they've never been actually shown in clinical trials to actually have an antioxidant benefit in humans. And if you look at the trials, Lance, this is what's crazy. If you look at the interventional trials, they've done these trials. This is not epidemiology. It's just interventional trials where they're giving people fruits and vegetables. So they've done interventional trials with fruit and vegetables where they give people more than a pound of fruit and vegetables a day. And they have another group that has no fruits and vegetables per day, zero. And these trials are between 24 days and 10 weeks. There's a variety of trials. What has been seen across the board in these trials is that there is no difference at the end of that time, there is no difference in the antioxidant parameters, DNA damage, any of these metrics in people between those groups of vegetable consumption. I'll give you the name of the study just so people can look it up because they won't believe me if I tell them that. So there's a number of these studies that I'll cite in the show notes too, if you, yeah. So increasing the vegetable intake dose is associated with a rise in plasma carotenoids without modifying oxidative stress or inflammation in overweight or obese postmenopausal women is one. And then I will cite two or three others because this is such a radical concept, people won't believe me. Effects of high consumption of vegetables on clinical immunological and antioxidant markers in subjects at risk of cardiovascular diseases. This is from 2018. And the conclusion is that no significant changes were detected in clinical, immunological, and antioxidant markers in biological samples in the low vegetable consumption group. The study provides additional evidence about the uncertainty of providing a clear evidence, uncertainty of providing a clear evidence for vegetables in modulating markers of immune function and antioxidant status. And then the last one I will cite is also pretty wild, perhaps the most impressive of any of these. No effect of 600 grams, more than a pound, of fruit and vegetables per day on oxidative DNA damage and repair in healthy smokers. So they've looked at all sorts of DNA damage markers 
8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, all kinds of things. They had no difference in those two groups. This flies in the face of the idea that fruit or vegetables or both are actually having an antioxidant benefit in humans. And if you look at the studies on pomegranate polyphenols, they're poorly absorbed. There's never been a study that actually proves that they have an antioxidant benefit. Now, this is all like really wild and mind-blowing, and I'll just take a moment and maybe I can just take a moment and explain the concept of hormesis to people. But yeah, there's no evidence that we really need these or that they do any unique thing in the human body. Wow. What we're talking about here is glutathione. I mentioned glutathione earlier as an antioxidant in the human body. Glutathione is the main antioxidant in the human body. These plant compounds do not act directly as antioxidants. I think there's a misconception that, that plant molecules circulate in the human body and have some unique role in our biochemistry. That's false. They essentially are very poorly absorbed and they're immediately detoxified and excreted when we ingest these plant polyphenol molecules. They don't circulate in the human body. They don't serve direct antioxidant roles. And let's just, I'll just pause for a second. Oxidation is loss of electrons. Reduction is gain of electrons. So what we're talking about is molecules either losing or gaining electrons and whether they're being oxidized or reduced. So a molecule that's an antioxidant is usually a molecule that's going to be oxidized uh, and it's going to reduce another molecule. It's going to antioxidize another molecule by donating an electron to another molecule and preventing the formation of a free radical. These molecules in plants don't do that directly in humans. Molecules in plants that have been shown to be beneficial do so by triggering production of our endogenous glutathione. So there's, they're intermediaries, and they increase our own glutathione in the body. The interesting piece is that if we look at plant molecules and human molecules, plant molecules always have a detrimental effect on the back end. They always do something else. They may be hormetic, which means a small amount of a toxin can provide a benefit by increasing glutathione. The reason they're hormetic is because they are oxidative stressors, and they do induce oxidative stress. But by being a small oxidative stress, these plant molecules increase our own stimulus for NRF2, which leads to glutathione production in our bodies. But we can do that on our own. And as these interventional trials would suggest, there's no net benefit. And if you're living a healthy life, if you're exercising, if you're in cold stress or heat stress or in the sun, you're going to get enough hormetic benefits. You're going to make enough glutathione to have optimal antioxidant status without these plant molecules. And there's no benefit to the plant molecules above and beyond that. And the real kicker is that because these molecules are from a different operating system, this is my metaphor for plants as PCs and animals as Max, they always have these other collateral damaging effects in humans that no one talks about. Mm. And they're going to either inhibit a process here or there, but if you look at human biochemistry, they muck up our biochemistry in other ways when we look at it. You know, We can get into sulforaphane, which will elicit that. But Nobody's going to tell you about the bad effects of curcumin in the human body, but there are many when we actually study them. They're going to tell you it's an antioxidant. Well, curcumin is a great example. It's not very well absorbed, and that's probably because we don't want it. If it does get absorbed, it's immediately detoxified. And then if you look at curcumin, it doesn't actually really have much of a hormetic effect in the human body, and it's been studied to inhibit all sorts of other things and cause problems with cytochrome P450, it binds to thioredoxin 2 reductase, it binds to endonuclease 2, it binds to topoisomerase 2 in the human body, it's messing up DNA processes. These molecules just get in and they muck up our biochemistry because they're foreign to humans. So I'm kind of rambling and going all over the place. I started with a discussion about fruit, but I really wanted to sort of at least introduce this concept that 
polyphenols are misunderstood. We can achieve those hormetics without them. Mm. And if you look hard enough, there is always a detriment. There's always these negative effects phenols in the human body. They're doing things that they're not meant to do because they're foreign to us. So, yeah. So basically you can eat fruits and vegetables and get vitamins and nutrients, but there's like other effects that are happening that it's causing on your body. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right? Like you can choose negative. that road, but there's other things that it may be causing like, you know, skin problems or depression or autoimmune disease from eating those sorts of plants. Exactly. And that's sort of the premise of a carnivore diet is if you can get all the nutrients you need to be an optimal performing human in the most bioavailable forms in the most appropriate biological ratios without any of the plant toxins, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, why wouldn't you eat the optimal food and avoid all the stuff that can have collaterally toxic effects? I mean, yeah. Some people can tolerate some plants, but for anyone that's sick in any way, this could be a real contributor to their issues. What about fiber? I've, heard, I've probably heard that a million times. And that's the first thing that somebody, I, when I talked about the carnivore diet, they're like, well, I like to poop, so I like fiber. And well, can you maybe paint the picture on why fiber, and I've been looking into it myself, why a lot of it's a myth. Fiber is a big myth, man. Fiber is probably the- This is going to blow the- people's minds, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is, fiber is one of the biggest myths, man. So the fiber myth started with a guy named Burkett, who was a surgeon in the 60s, 50s and 60s. He went to Africa and he was interested in diverticulosis. He defined also Burkett's lymphoma while he was there. Um, but, but he was interested in diverticulosis and he was interested in the preponderance of diverticulosis in Western populations relative to indigenous populations. And so he hypothesized that it was all of the fiber that these, these indigenous Africans were eating in the 50s and 60s, or these semi-indigenous, you know, these Africans that he was visiting in Tanzania were eating more fiber. So he hypothesized that, you know, because that it was all the fiber they were eating and these colossal shits they were taking that was causing them to not have diverticulosis. Because what, what he observed in the West was that the incidence of diverticulosis was rapidly rising. And in, in Africa, there was essentially none. So he made this hypothesis that it was fiber, but that was just an associational hypothesis. And when we've actually gone back and looked, it's not true at all. And probably the reverse is true. There have been multiple studies that have been done trying to correlate or at least examine the association between fiber and diverticulosis. And what you see across the board is that fiber does not protect against diverticulosis. I should define diverticulosis. It's the outpouching of the mucosal and submucosal layers of the colon through the muscularis mucosa, forming these blind loops in the colon, these small sort of finger-like projections in the colon. And so these can bleed and cause pretty significant lower GI bleeding. They can become infected and they can become occluded at their base and form pus pockets and then they can rupture, cause diverticulitis. So these are a big deal. Most people or many people in our Western society have them after the age of 50. I think the incidence is greater than 60%. Many people are asymptomatic, but they can always become occluded or they can bleed. So, and they're probably an indication that there's something pathologic going on in the large bowel. Now, what we see when we actually study the connections between fiber and diverticulosis is that there is no protective effect against diverticulosis with fiber, which completely invalidates Burkitt's hypothesis. Too bad it took 45 years and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people or billions of people have been sort of incorrectly educated on this. 
you know, there's a, a number of studies that I'll point people to. A high-fiber diet does not protect against asymptomatic diverticulosis. In this study, they looked at 2,100 participants uh, aged 30 to 80. They did colonoscopy on these patients, and they looked for incidents of diverticulosis, and then did a survey to get a sense of how much fiber they were eating. And they, put, they divided them by quartile in how much fiber they were eating. And what they found was pretty shocking. They found that the people who ate the most fiber had the most diverticulosis. Now, this is an epidemiology study, and we can't draw causation from this, but the correlation is pretty strong by quartile. It's kind of a damning finding for fiber. It certainly makes it really basically impossible to make a case that fiber is in any way protective against diverticulosis. And you could make a case, you could generate a hypothesis that in some people, fiber is going to worsen diverticulosis, mm. which is just crazy. So if we also then, your, per, your friend was talking about constipation. The constipation story is equally mind-blowing. I mean, there are two studies that I'll point out here. Well, the, the first, the main study that I'll point out is that there have been, you know, the fact that fiber causes us to have bowel movements is, is just false from a physiologic perspective. I'll tell you in my experience and the experience of thousands of carnivores, you do not need fiber to poop. You know, I had the most beautiful poop ever this morning. I almost took a picture of it for you. <laughs> so in 2012, this is, this is a really a wild study here. Stopping or reducing dietary fiber intake reduces constipation and its associated symptoms. Like you can just read the title and you go, what? Stopping or reducing fiber reduces constipation and its associated symptoms? That's wild. So 63 patients, this 63 cases of idiopathic constipation and they put them into three groups. One of the groups had zero fiber lance. One of the groups had low fiber or moderate fiber. And one of the groups had sort of regular amounts of fiber. And I mean, the findings are shocking. The group with zero fiber had complete resolution of constipation and bloating, like 100% resolution. They had zero. They had none. It completely resolved. So if someone has constipation and they want to fix their constipation, I would challenge them to completely eliminate fiber from their diet and watch what happens. Wow, and then take... And then take a picture of your beautiful poop and show it to your gastroenterologist who's been telling you for years that you need to eat more fiber. The idea that fiber is good for humans is fallacy. There is no medical data to support this, yet it is parroted by every other functional medicine doctor. Well, that's not true. By most other functional medicine doctors in the space, they're all saying fiber is what you need. Fiber is what you need, more fiber. It's yeah. complete bullshit. It's complete bullshit. There's no evidence that fiber is beneficial for diverticulosis. There's no evidence that fiber is beneficial for constipation. In fact, there's clear evidence that fiber worsens constipation in many people. And then people go on, you know, at the risk of belaboring the fiber story, we could talk for an hour about fiber. It would be the most yeah. boring conversation ever. But there's no evidence that fiber is protective against colon cancer. There's no evidence that fiber is protective against recurrence of colonic adenoma. There's no evidence that fiber lowers LDL. And there's no evidence that fiber lowers blood pressure. So what else is there? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, why the hell are we trying to eat so much? It's like, our obsession. Like, I mean, even, even one of my family members suffers from IBS. I won't, I won't say who she is just in case. <laughs> I don't want to embarrass her. But her doctor tells her to eat these, these, this shitty cereal called Shreddies. Which oh, is, I don't know if you guys have the worst that. idea ever. No, it's but the worst. The, and, and she's on Metamucil. That's causing her IBS. Man. And Metamucil, which is like absolute just garbage. And I've been saying for years, I say you garbage that stuff. Let me tell you about Metamucil. Lancet 2000 calcium and fiber supplementation in prevention of colorectal adenoma recurrence, randomized intervention trial supplementation with fiber as ispagala husk, which is a cousin of uh, psyllium, which is Metamucil. Yeah. Right. 
may have adverse effects on colorectal adenoma recurrence. Wow. There is an increased odds ratio for the recurrence of colorectal adenoma in people who are taking psyllium. Like, what the heck? Like, this That's was looking crazy. at colorectal cancer prevention, but like, yeah, the, the evidence for psyllium is horrible. Like, this is wow. just, they, we're doing the wrong thing. This is a highly chained gastroenterology doctor telling your family member that for IBS, they should be using Metamucil and eating, eating shreddies. And I would say, <laughs> go completely the opposite direction and thank me when you, when you realize this. Like, you know, they can send me a little thank you note. Like, stop yeah. every shred of fiber zero fiber and watch your IBS disappear. Like there is, this is something I've seen invariably, invariably on people on a carnivore diet is the the GI symptoms go away completely. No gas, no bloating, no constipation. I mean, people do get some GI symptoms on carnivore because there's a switchover in the gut flora and sometimes people get loose stool in the beginning, but people who have constipation, gas, bloating, their digestion gets so much better, so much better. It's just crazy. We're doing the wrong things in medicine. So that disease or whatever it's called, I don't like to call it, is that ulcerative colitis or whatever that one's called? Ulcerative colitis. Yeah. So you would say that would be a recommendation to go full carnivore to really help that as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't give medical advice on a podcast, but there are, no, yeah, multiple, but I just mean, there are like, multiple case reports now yeah. of people with, this is, so we're talking inflammatory bowel disease versus irritable bowel disease, right? Yeah. So irritable bowel disease is often you know, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, right? That's irritable bowel disease. I don't think most GIs, I think a lot of GIs are getting to the point where they realize that IBS is probably SIBO. That's a totally different situation. That's bacterial overgrowth in small intestine. And that has to do with fiber and probably autoimmunity causing paralysis of the gut and the gut is hypomodal. But then we have a whole other thing where the actual gut gets inflamed and ulcerated and, and that is inflammatory bowel disease. That is ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. Okay. So those are a whole different ball of wax, but those are, that's an autoimmune disease. There are published case reports now of carnivorous diets leading to resolution of inflammatory bowel disease. The paleo medicina group in Hungary has published a Crohn's case report. I've had multiple people online contact me. I've worked with people with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. They find incredible, incredible resolution of their inflammatory bowel disease with these diets like that alone should just change the face of medicine. Like we should stop, we should consider like what is causing inflammatory bowel disease. The way we treat it is with steroids and very strong immunologic modifying agents. And that's a real problem for people, you know, that's, that's not a good thing. That's not what we should be doing without beginning to question what is causing that, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, um, I want to respect your time. I don't know if you're in a hurry here. I know you got lots of podcasts. I have a couple (laughs) more questions, but I mean, I can shorten it. We can, I mean, there's a couple more things I want to dive into, but I got maybe 15 more minutes, 15. Yeah. Oh, perfect. All right. So (laughs) I want to talk about, you brought up sulforaphane and Dr. Rhonda Patrick. So a lot of people follow her. She's, you know, it's so, so the other way about plants and all this and, and very interesting woman and very smart. I just like to hear your insight on some of the stuff like broccoli sprouts, some of the stuff that we've been told and kind of like, you know, why we're told that and why they may not be as effective as we thought. Yeah. The broccoli sprout story is a powder keg, man. Talk about a can of worms. I love talking about this. So I'll just say that I fully respect Ron Patrick. I appreciate her work and I disagree with her strongly. 
and I fear that many of her recommendations are harming people, and I'll explain why. So broccoli sprouts are sprouts from broccoli. They're made from broccoli seeds. So one of the things I talked about earlier was that plant toxins and anti-nutrients are often highest in the seeds. So if that holds true, we would see the highest levels of plant toxins in seeds, and that is what we see. Um, in this case, the highest level of sulforaphane precursor is in broccoli seeds. Um, and so let's explain this. Sulforaphane is not a polyphenolic compound, technically speaking, but it is an oxidant. So sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant molecule that is formed from a precursor molecule called glucoraphanin. And the only way that sulforaphane gets formed is when glucoraphanin is combined with a molecule or an enzyme called myrosinase. Sulforaphane doesn't ever exist in a broccoli plant or a brassicid plant. So sulforaphane is part of a compound, of fam, part of a family of compounds called isothiocyanates. Isothiocyanates are found in all the brassica vegetables. So we're talking kale, cabbage, collard, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, chard. I'm going to crush people's dreams here. All the brassica vegetables have isothiocyanates, which I would argue are some of the most toxic plant toxins there are. Okay. The isothiocyanates exist in a precursor form like glucoraphanin, which combines with myrosinase only when the plant is chewed. This is a defense mechanism. At no point in the life cycle of a broccoli or kale or cauliflower or cabbage plant does sulforaphane exist because it couldn't. It would kill the plant. It is so oxidatively reactive from an organic chemistry perspective that it would kill the plant. It's going to run around creating so many free radicals and so much oxidative stress that it's going to kill the plant. So this is a defense chemical. It's a defense chemical that is in these plants so that when they get chewed, it is made and it hurts the animal that is consuming it, okay? So immediately toxifies. Sulforaphane, like I mentioned earlier, is not a compound that circulates. It has no unique role in human biochemistry. It is immediately detoxified, but so oxidatively stressful that it induces hormesis. It induces our antioxidant system, the NRF2 pathway turns on in the liver, and we make a little bit more glutathione. So forthing does not act as an antioxidant, it is a pro-oxidant. But what I said earlier with hormesis, and this is a concept that's a little bit hard to explain sometimes, is that a little bit of a poison can be beneficial. But remember what else I said. These plant molecules may be shown to have benefit in one area, but if we look other places, they always have negative effects that I would argue are net negative because they are not from our operating system. And this is what Rhonda Patrick misses. So we are eating a molecule that is a plant toxin. She is saying that all this research with sulforaphane showing that it induces reduced DNA damage because we are making more glutathione, which is true. If we make more glutathione, we will protect our DNA from damage. But we don't need sulforaphane to induce glutathione. We don't need sulforaphane to do an optimal level of DNA damage protection. And remember the studies I cited showing that a pound and a half of vegetables, which included brassica vegetables, over four to 10 weeks did not have any benefit in terms of oxidative damage when we looked at it in that respect, right? So there were, they looked at a bunch of DNA damage parameters, 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, endonuclease, three sites, et cetera, et cetera. No benefits in the interventional trials. Sulforaphane has been studied. And if they look at DNA damage, they can show that when they give sulforaphane or broccoli sprouts, DNA damage will go down. But what's the catch? The catch is that that is not a unique effect of sulforaphane. We can achieve that. My main concern with sulforaphane is that it also competes with iodine at the level of the thyroid and will cause hypothyroidism. You can easily eat enough broccoli sprouts to create hypothyroidism. There are probably hundreds of thousands of people with 
subclinical or clinical hypothyroid or even undiagnosed hypothyroid right now related to broccoli sprouts. I just pulled that number out of the air. Maybe it's a thousand. But I mean, there are thousands of people listening to Rhonda Patrick and just crushing broccoli sprouts. Evolutionarily, that makes zero sense. Mm. Broccoli sprouts don't want to get eaten. They hate you eating them. You're killing the broccoli sprouts. They are trying to defend themselves and they are going to win. They are going to mess up your thyroid. I guarantee it. So why are we eating something that has a non-unique effect on glutathione that's going to mess up your thyroid in the long run and no one is talking about that effect. Rhonda Patrick's not talking about that. No one that's selling you the supplements is talking about. So Fortifane is a multi-million dollar supplement industry and that's why in my opinion that people don't want to hear this. I mean, this is a big money for people and it's made Rhonda Patrick very well known she can't come out and say this, right? I said that I respect her work, but I disagree with her strongly. I've called her out on Instagram. One of the things about Rhonda is that she never responds on any social media outlet. She won't engage in debate or discussion. She just kind of does her thing and doesn't care about what anybody else is doing. I mean, she's trying to do the right thing. She's trying to help people. I believe it. I don't think she's a wrong, a bad person, but I think that we need to be able to question this and say, hey, this is not right. Like this is not a beneficial thing for you. Plants don't want to get eaten. They're not beneficial for humans. And if we believe they are, we're fooling ourselves. Wow. And a supplement company or, you know, you can put a spin on it and say, hey, look, here's the benefit. But if you really dig into it, you find this with all the plant molecules. We talked about curcumin a little bit. The same is true for resveratrol. The same is true for sulforaphane. The same is true for whatever molecule you want, whether it's caffeic acid and chlorogenic acid and coffee. <laughs> they're just, they're not good for us. They're just not good for us. And I would just challenge people, if you've heard that this molecule from a plant is good for you, it's almost invariably because it is inducing glutathione. Resveratrol may directly activate sirtuin genes. We didn't talk about that one, but a lot of these molecules that are seen as antioxidants are actually pro-oxidants. They're inducing glutathione, which again is not a unique thing to these molecules. I posted this great article on my Instagram about these cold water swimmers in Berlin And when they go into cold water, they get this oxidative stress. So you can create oxidative stress in your body by exercising, by swimming in cold water, by going in a sauna. It's real easy. You don't need a toxic plant molecule to do it. You can do it. You can just live a radical life and get oxidative stress, which is going to cause a hormetic effect and going to bump your glutathione for a short amount of time. But these plant molecules are pro-oxidant molecules. They're not antioxidants. They may bump your glutathione, but at what cost? At what cost? There's always a cost on the back end. It's, it's hurting us as humans. Wow. It's amazing, man. And I, wow. I just, this is, this has been great. And I really appreciate it. I know it went a little bit longer than expected. No worries, dude. I get so excited. I can't stop uh, talking about it. Man, like this is, I, this stuff is, is so good. And we only just scratched the surface. And I think it's, it's crazy to think that we've been led down this road to be taught one thing, but most of it's been wrong and we're only at the beginning of learning a whole other and going down a whole other rabbit hole. So thank you so much, man, for shitting the light on this stuff because it's so important and it's just a huge kick of the ass. It's amazing. It's like, like, and I think most people listening will just be sort of shell shocked at this point. And I'll just say, you know, be patient, read the literature, read the show notes. Totally. Just look into it. Do your own research. Don't believe me. Do the research. Fact check me. But it's there. I mean, I'm not making shit up. No, definitely. And I think that I, you know, that it's so disruptive that I think that in the next five to ten years, we're going to see this just blow up, man. Yeah. And we're going to have to rewrite the nutrition textbooks, and maybe we won't ever rewrite the nutrition textbooks because it's a political thing. But we are going to have to rewrite the nutrition textbooks 
And then we're going to, you know, there's all these ethical questions, which we didn't really have time to dive into today. And if people yeah. have questions about the ethics of eating animals or the sustainability of eating animals, I would direct them to the work of Alan Savory and this idea that, you know, ruminants grazing on land in a natural way can actually increase the amount of carbon storage in the soil. We can increase the amount of greenhouse gases that can be stored in soil when ruminants are grazing on the land properly. So the idea that carnivore diet or eating more meat is bad for the environment is is fairly myopic as well. And I would believe there are some pretty incredible environmental arguments that it could be a very good thing for the environment. I'm glad you touched on that. And that's perfect. And now people can check that out because that's a lot of question people think. Because I got, you know, I hear vegan propaganda all the time. I get tired of it. Whether you're vegan or not, I don't really care. I mean, it's just like, I like to hear both sides, right? You right. know, what's more right. sustainable, what's better for the environment, ethically, whatever. Thanks, man. I, I want to also make sure we can check you out. Everybody can find you. Where can we find you? And what's the best way to contact you? Yeah, so I do, I do functional medicine. I see, private, I see private clients. If people want to work with me for health issues, I also have a health coach that I work with. We see patients virtually, and I'll be moving to San Diego in July to open a private practice there. If you want to work with me, reach out to me at paulsaladinomd at gmail.com. Hopefully, you can put that in the show notes for yeah, me. Yeah, will do. And then I have, um, I have a YouTube channel, which I'm starting to do my own series of YouTube interviews on. And that's at paulsaladinomd. And then I'm all over the, the internet media webs. I'm on Instagram at paulsaladinomd. I'm on Twitter at mdsaladino. I'm on Facebook at Paul Saladino MD. I have a Patreon, which is Paul Saladino MD. Website is Paul Saladino MD. So people can check me out. All those on my website. There's a list of many of the podcasts I've done, and I've also linked many of the YouTube videos that I've done personally in my interviews with people, so people can use that as resources. Awesome, yeah, guys, make sure you check out his YouTube videos for sure. They're super informative. They're really awesome, especially for a beginner. A lot of you listening out there are definitely beginners probably in this field as, as well as you know, most people. So I think it's a good place to start and you know, have an open mind with this, guys. You know, be able to look at things objectively and have an open mind so, and kind of make the best decision for yourself and what you know, feels right for you. So just one more question before we sign off, man. This has to do with adversity. I ask, what is one thing that you could give the, the audience somebody to overcome adversity, to go on to experience a better life or overcome a challenge, especially maybe we can do it in going with their gut and going against the grain on something that they truly believe in. What is one tip that you could give them that they could apply today? Yeah, I think that, I think that what I would say is that when you come upon adversity, it's a good thing, you know, <laughs> like yeah. it's like, that's how you know something is going right. You know, like, when things get hard, you're moving towards something that's valuable. So I would just reframe the adversity as success and reframe the adversity as the fact that like, oh, I'm onto something good here. Like this is a hard thing. Like anything that we want in life is going to be hard. I just, I mean, maybe that sounds passe or, you know, trite, but you know, I think that anytime we're doing disruptive things, anytime we're doing something that's meaningful or unique or original, we're going to come up against resistance. So the resistance means we're doing something well. We're doing something right, whether it's, you know, a problem at the gym or, you know, a problem in a relationship. Like if you're coming up against adversity, that's an opportunity for learning and you're, you're moving towards something valuable. So just see it as, as a positive and as like, oh, I'm on, this is, a, this is actually an indication that I'm moving towards something good. I'm constantly having to reframe that way for myself. It's not, I think that so for often, so often for myself, I'm thinking that, you know, that adversity means I'm doing something wrong or I'm messing up or I'm not talking to the right people or I'm not 
I'm not communicating in the right way or I'm not communicating things clearly enough. And I think that it's just the idea that like, it, it probably means you're doing something right and then, you know, just move through it. And, and that's, that's going to be a positive thing. And the other thing I'd say is that, you know, try to find the thing that you just cannot be stopped doing, you know, it doesn't matter how much adversity you encounter, you know, yeah. like if you cannot be stopped, like they cannot shut me up, you know, like yeah. I will do this. I'm going to keep doing this no matter what, like you can't shut me up now. And, you know, it's great yeah. to be on podcasts like this and to get a platform to talk about it, but I can't shut up about this. I talk about this with everyone. It's such a disruptive concept. So when you find that thing, that's like, okay, that's what I need to do, you know? And then you go on that, you know, it's every once in a while, I think we sort of do this thing in our life where we're trying to figure out what am I supposed to be doing? Or like, where am I going to put this energy? Because all these things are hard, but you'll know it when you're, when you're onto something good, you'll come upon that adversity and you'll be like, I don't give a shit. Like, this is what I'm, this is what I'm doing now. I'm so passionate. You feel it. It's hard, but you just feel the, the pressure behind you, pushing you forward or the pull forward in, in, in a much greater way. And then you'll know like, Oh, this is the right thing that I should be doing now. Awesome, man. That's gold. Um, yeah, I, I'm probably not the only one that got a ton of value out of this. And just again, want to thank you so much for coming in and hanging yeah, out man, with for us. Sure. This was great. And um, yeah, man, I, I can't wait to just see what you keep creating. I follow you. I love listening to you. I, I, you got, you got great energy and you're very good at explaining a very complicated subject. And, um, yeah, I thank you, man. It's going to be, it's going to be awesome to watch the, the growth over the next year, next five years. I'm super excited, man. Thanks for having me on. Awesome, brother. Make sure you check them out, guys. We're going to, I'm going to put all the info in the show notes and we'll, you'll be able to find Paul and it'll be nice and easy for you. So have an amazing day. Appreciate you guys. Wow. That was intense. <laughs> Hope you guys got your notepads out. I hope you wrote down notes because that was powerful. If not, go back, listen to it again. I know I have to. He's got so much information on such complicated topic. So many people don't want to talk about this stuff for ethical reasons, for whatever reasons. Totally understandable. Everybody's got a perspective on everything, but I have a little bit of a perspective shift from hearing that. So anyways, as always, do what's best for you. Research whatever makes you feel great you know, take that and, you know, use that in your own world. So I really appreciate you guys. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, let us know what you thought of the show and we'll continue to bring the heat and bring you the value on University of Adversity. So love and appreciate you all. We'll catch you next time. You just finished another class at the University of Adversity. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and tune in again next time for more life lessons with Lance ECOs.